At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. From The Nation magazine, this is Start Making Sense, political talk without the boring parts. I'm John Wiener. Today we'll talk about poverty. Mia Birdsong has been interviewing some experts on the subject, poor people. Her new podcast for the nation, More Than Enough, starts this week. Also, democratic socialism, American style. Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin will talk about socialism in America today. Their new book is called We Own the Future. But first... It's been 10 years since Haiti was devastated by the earthquake that killed more than 100,000 people. For a report, we turn to Amy Willens. She's reported on Haiti for three decades. She published The Rainy Season in 1989. She's written about Haiti for The New York Times, The Atlantic, The New Yorker, The New Republic, and of course, The Nation. More recently, she wrote the award-winning book, Farewell, Fred Voodoo. She is also the former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker and a longtime contributing editor at The Nation. Amy, welcome back. Thank you, John. So what did your friends in Haiti tell you this time when you said you wanted to come? I'm always saying I want to come and then things interrupt me. But this time they kind of interrupted me and said, don't come. It's too dangerous. You can't come. You'll need an armored car. You'll need bodyguards. They're shooting in the streets. You have to bring fake credit cards. So if you do get robbed, you give them fake credit cards because they know what to do with your credit cards. You just have to be very careful. You can't go to the shanty towns, which is where I've spent a lot of my time in Haiti. And you shouldn't come. So then I went. But of course, uh, social breakdown, high crime and disintegration are nothing new in Haiti. Yeah, that's true. They're nothing new in Haiti, but it's it's worse now. The president is both inept and uninspired. He's also very corrupt, as his predecessor, who sort of named him to the presidency, also was. The president now is Jovenel Moïse, and his predecessor is the compas singer, uh, Michel Martelly. And they were both elected in kind of suspect elections with very low voter turnout, And the uh, corruption has been devastating and especially tragic because a lot of the monies that have been stolen are from this fund called Petrocaraib. And Petrocaribe is the Creole way of saying it, was a fund established by Hugo Chavez throughout the Caribbean to encourage goodwill toward Venezuela, make Venezuela a power in the Caribbean, but also to fund social projects. So he sold Venezuelan oil to these countries with a big discount, and Haiti got a very big discount so that they could put the money from selling Venezuelan oil on the market into social works that would benefit the Haitian people. Instead, the funds were pillaged, just pillaged, by officials in the Haitian government, by contracts with buddies and family of officials in the government, to the point where recently a group of Haitian auditors commissioned by the government 
documented this in a 659-page report, and that unleashed uh, public outcry and outrage and uh, and a movement called Cote Cob Petro Caribe, which means where is the Petro-Caribbean money? We have read a little bit about huge protests in, in Haiti. It's a little hard to tell exactly what these have been focused on. Has there been a focus? So the beginning of the, of the uh, demonstrations, well, there were food price demonstrations and gas price demonstrations, and then there were the Petro-Carib demonstrations, which began with this group that's now called the Petro-Challengers. And it's a huge group, and it's young people, and they're really angry. And for a while under this new president, they could leave the country on cheap flights for uh, Chile and Brazil. But because of the changes in governments in Chile and Brazil— which are not great for Haitian immigrants, they stopped going and they were left looking at Haiti. This is my country. What is to be done? How can I have any future here? Which people have been saying in Haiti for a long time, but it has become harder. The poverty is worse, if you can believe that. And they started to ask this question, where's this money that was supposed to go to the Haitian people? And now you've all pocketed it. And we want the president to step down and we want to replace him with a government for the people. All this was going on before you went, and then you did go. Your friends had said you'd need an armored car with bodyguards. What did you do when you arrived? The reason they said you need an armored car and bodyguards is because there are a lot of gangs in Haiti now, and the gangs are funded by various political actors in Haiti. Nobody really knows who, but there are at least a dozen of them, and I've heard much higher estimates. They can be small, like three guys. They can be big, like a real gang, like in a New York gang or a Chicago gang. And they shoot kind of semi-indiscriminately, and you don't know when uh, you might get in the crossfire or you might be a target. And Two journalists have been killed. Uh, and right before I went down... A French couple, really tragically, a French couple from like France Profonde, as it's called, the deep France, not Parisians, came to adopt a kid. And they basically, they got off the plane, went to their guest house and were killed by in a robbery gone bad. So it was very scary. I arrived. I get in an armored car with two great big bodyguards that a friend of mine managed to get together for me. I've never done this before in my life in Haiti. I usually drive my own crummy little car. And I went to my hotel. There was nothing, no shooting, not even any protests. It was weird. And I got rid of my bodyguards and my armored car very quickly. Now, we haven't talked about Trump yet. We can quote Trump, who famously called Haiti a shithole country. Do we need to know anything more about the Trump administration in Haiti than that? Well, Haiti's sort of gone off the radar for the Trump administration, but... Jovenel Moise, they kind of like him, the president of Haiti, because he got his ambassador to do Trump's bidding and vote against Nicolas Maduro's uh, election, the legitimacy of Maduro's election in Venezuela. Maduro, the sort of successor of Hugo Chavez, who they hate more than any foreign leader, even though he's dead. In the OAS, Haiti voted against Maduro, and that is a favor that Haiti did for the United States. And it, to the disgust of the Haitian people who love Venezuela and love a hero in Venezuela and who supported Simon Bolivar in his uh, taking of Venezuela and liberation of the Venezuelan slaves. That's a key thing in Haitian history. So they were really mad about this 
sort of turncoat betrayal of the Haitian Revolution. And Trump, meanwhile, although he doesn't really care about Haiti, he wants Moise there to do whatever bidding he needs done. And he sent three officials right before I arrived in Haiti. So one after another, they came. And one after another, they gave a photo op to President Moise. And one after another, they did not give any indication that they wanted him to step down. They did say that he ought to engage in a national dialogue, meaning talk to the opposition. But the opposition is a kind of complicated thing because they're the Petra challengers who are all young and not organized like a political party. And then there are all the um, older people, some of whom are very valuable and some of whom aren't. And the young people did the movement. And now the old people are the ones that, that the president is supposed to talk to. And he doesn't really want to talk to even them. And they don't even really want to talk to him. But with the Americans behind him, they feel maybe they have to talk to him. So after you got rid of your armored car and your bodyguards, you you went uh, off to report on what's actually going on in Haiti. And one of the people you visited was Aristide, somebody you knew when. And who I haven't seen in many, many years. So this is President Jean-Bertrand Aristide. He was elected in a free and a fair election. He got 60% or more of the vote. And no one has questioned that election ever. He came to power in 1990. And then shortly thereafter, eight months, he was ousted in a coup that was green-lighted by the United States. And uh, he went to Washington. That was under George Bush Sr. Then Bill Clinton came to office, and then Aristide managed to lobby him into bringing Aristide back. He was reimplanted. It's very rare that this happens, reinstated. Then he was ousted in a second coup in 2004 under Baby Bush. So um, he was taken out by Papa Bush and Baby Bush, and and now he's back again. He was allowed back in to Haiti under Obama. <laughs> See how I think the president of the United States is actually the president of Haiti. He was allowed back in, but he's a a private person now, and uh, he's living out in his big white house in the sort of suburb of Port-au-Prince with peacocks in the yard, and he has a university he's established for medical students like orthodonture and dentistry and, and stuff that really Haiti needs, and kids are flocking to this university, even though it costs a little bit of money, but not a lot of money. And it's a very impressive thing that he's doing, but, but we can't tell what he's doing politically at all. I don't know if he is. I couldn't really tell. He talks a lot about politics, but is he really a force? I don't know. He's a beloved figure among the kids, but we don't know what he's really up to. Uh, you talked to a lot of other really interesting and potentially important people there. Who is especially notable? Well, there's one person I really like who talked to me about Haitian history. This is a person who's worked in non-governmental organizations for a long time in Haiti and has gone up the ladder and back down the ladder of these kinds of organizations, of which there are so many in Haiti because someone needs to do governance, and uh, the Haitian government doesn't function properly yet. And this person talked to me about how all of these groups of Haitians who were working after the fall of Duvalier in 1986 for a new Haiti are now sort of supplicants for the money of outside organizations, and they've lost their Haitianness. And I do feel this very strongly myself, having gone there for about 30 years now. Um, 
And this person talked about also the loss of the intellectual class. So many people have left Haiti. There's this enormous brain drain that continues now because if you're a person who can look around and you have any, um, any money whatsoever to get out, you're going to try to get out and live a real life. It's your only life. And the, so the people who remain don't have that ability and don't, haven't seen the world. So there's a lot of Haiti pessimism today. Your piece for the nation reports on what you call little sprouts of possibility everywhere. What were those? Well, one of my favorites is the, and I hope to God it's not corrupt, and I think it's not. It's a very interesting project called the Library of Cité Soleil, Bibliothèque Cité Soleil. It's under construction. So much in Haiti is sort of semi-under construction. So they took me around, and I've gone around it several times, and it's much further advanced than it was before, but it's still not really functioning, you know, like, it's a little Kafka-esque. Here's the playground. Here's the uh, sound studio. Here's where the kids are going to read books together. But it's all still cement block. So members of the community actually support this, and they have their uh, roles that they read online of each person and how much they've given. I gave them $40 once, and they, they Amy Willens, $40 online on their Facebook page, which is extreme transparency. You still can't know if it's really, really transparent, but I believe in them. I'm putting my imprimatur on the Bibliothèque Cité Soleil, and I hope like in another two years it'll be done. It takes a long time to build anything in Haiti with real funds from the real community. Uh, and then there's a park out in Martissan. It's a beautiful park where I couldn't go because really Martissan is too dangerous still to go through. Um, but it's a beautiful park where I've been before, and the community runs it, and Gang members from the community participate in it, and there's a market, a crafts market there, and it's a lovely little thing. There's a, uh, a tree forestation uh, project out in the countryside where the people, instead of relying on USAID to give them trees, they rely on money from their families outside Haiti because mm -hmm. their families have money, but they're real families who come from that town to buy the trees and put the trees in and... So those are little exciting things, and the involvement of the, the outside Haitian community, the diaspora, is really important in Haiti, too, because they have the funds because they are inside functioning economies right now, and Haiti's economy is not functioning. Amy Willens wrote the cover story on Haiti for the new issue of The Nation. It's called Haiti in a Corner. Amy, thanks for talking with us today. You're welcome, John. Now it's time to talk about poverty in America. We have a lot of experts on what to do about it, academics and policymakers, but Mia Birdsong has a new way of approaching that. She's a senior fellow of the Economic Security Project. She was founding co-director of Family Story and vice president of the Family Independence Initiative. And she's widely known for her TED conversation with the founders of Black Lives Matter. Her TED Talk, The Story We Tell About Poverty Isn't True, has been viewed almost two million times. And now she has a new four-part podcast at The Nation. It's called More Than Enough, and it starts this week. Mia Birdsong, welcome to the program. 
Thank you so much for having me. Well, when it comes to understanding poverty in America, you think there's one group of experts who have not really been consulted. Who are they? Um, People who are poor. (laughs) And I'll say it's it's very obvious, right? Yeah. I don't actually think that there's any group of people who are so often left out of the conversations happening about the solutions for them. And it really isn't just about policymakers or academics or nonprofit organizations designing something and then saying, what do you think of this thing we've already created? It really is about asking people what should be created in the first place. It's about listening to people when they tell you what their lives are like. And it's also about recognizing that there is leadership and innovation happening in poor families and communities. And if we really care about economic justice, we actually should be resourcing those innovations and following that leadership. And your podcast includes audio that you've recorded of your conversations with many poor people across the country. Tell us about some of those conversations. I'm going to give you a little context. So I kind of was invited into um, a conversation about guaranteed income and was super excited about that and also noticed that there weren't poor people who are or even really people who are advocating um, on behalf of poor folks in, in this conversation. If we look at the national conversation, it really has been policymakers, academics, and like, you know, Elon Musk um, <laughs> yes. and people freaking out about like robots. Right. So I started what I really hope is just like the beginning of inviting folks who would actually benefit from guaranteed income into the conversation. So I went across the country, I visited six cities and I held workshops and I just asked people like, you know, kind of what role money played in their lives, like what it felt like to not have enough of it, what it would be like if they didn't have to worry about it anymore. I talked about guaranteed income and just like asked people what what they thought of the idea and how their lives would change if that was a reality. And let me say, first of all, like resounding yes from people (laughs) about the idea of guaranteed income, but also like folks totally get that there's no silver bullet when it comes to addressing economic injustice. So people were not like let's get rid of everything else and have guaranteed income. They were like, this sounds like a good idea in addition to like fixing a lot of the structures we already have, the systems we already have that are meant to support poor people. I mean, the conversations were amazing. It was really easy for people to imagine what their lives would be like um, if they didn't have to worry about money. People talked about the stuff that like anybody would talk about. They talked about saving for, you know, their kid's school. They talked about going back to school themselves. They talked about paying off debt. They talked about working less so they could spend more time with their kids or like taking care of their aging parents. They talked about saving for homes. They talked about buying cars, starting businesses, like all those things. Um, And they definitely talked about creating more space for like enjoyment in their lives. So I remember there was a woman in Jackson who, Jackson, Mississippi, who said that she would go on vacation for the first time in 10 years. And what that meant was that she wanted to like drive with her kids two states over to Georgia to visit family that her children had never met. There was a mom in LA who said she would pay the legal fees that were necessary to help her parents move from Mexico to the United States. There was a young man in San Francisco who said he has sisters and nieces and nephews, and he would want to help his sisters out with like diapers and clothes um, for his nieces and nephews. So really like regular things that 
people really, really struggle with when they don't have enough money. My Republican relatives say people are poor because they made, quote, bad choices. And if you just give them money, they will make more bad choices about how to spend it. What do the poor people that you talk to say about that? Did, did any of them talk about deservedness or bad choices? So let me say first, it's not just Republicans that think that people are poor because of their own actions and behaviors. Liberals are just nicer about it. (laughs) But to answer the question, like, no community is a monolith. And all of us are kind of swimming in the same culture that promotes this kind of personal responsibility narrative that says we alone are in control of their destinies. So I definitely heard some folks say that they or people they knew had made bad choices. But for the most part... The folks I talked to totally understood that the system is rigged and that all of the quote unquote good choices that they made are not a match for an economy that funnels opportunity, investment, education, and any number of resources to the people who already have it. And that kind of personal responsibility narrative, I think, is one of the most profound obstacles we have when it comes to actually addressing economic injustice in our country because we think that people are poor because they don't work hard enough. And we don't think they deserve to have things that are actually, you know, fundamental human rights. You mentioned Elon Musk. There's some other tech billionaires, including Mark Zuckerberg, who have talked about universal basic income being a good idea. On first glance, it seems like, well, that is a good thing that the super rich want to help poor people. But how do you feel about their role in this conversation? Sure. I mean, anybody who says that guaranteed income is a good idea, like, I want to appreciate that. I think that this is one of those instances where the devil is in the details. Like, Mm. if they're talking about having guaranteed income, but eliminating food stamps and housing vouchers and any other social supports we have, then like, no, that's not that's not cool. I think that if people people are serious about supporting guaranteed income, then they, one, have to recognize that, you know, being a billionaire is actually immoral. And um, they should spend their money advocating for a massive tax hike on the wealthy to fund things like guaranteed income, but also like child care and health care and education and housing. I learned from your new podcast that guaranteed basic income is not a new idea. It's something black activists were talking about especially in the 60s, including the Panthers, the welfare rights movement, and Dr. King in the mid-60s. In a state of society where want is abolished, the dignity of the individual will flourish when the decisions concerning his life are in his own hands, when he has the assurance that his income is stable and certain, when the unjust measurement of human worth on a scale of dollars is eliminated. Now our country can do this. John Kenneth Galbraith said that a guaranteed annual income could be done for about $20 billion a year. And I say to you today that if our nation can spend $35 billion a year, to fight an unjust, evil war in Vietnam and $20 billion to put a man on the moon. It can spend billions of dollars to put God's children on their own two feet right here on Earth. When and where did you first hear about this, and, and what did you think about it? 
when I first heard about it, I was in college. It was the 90s. And um, it was because we were studying King's um, economic justice work. I totally thought it was ridiculous. The idea that the government was going to give us free money. And largely it's because I held this idea that like hard work equals success. And I had internalized this idea that, that my own success, you know, I grew up in a poor neighborhood. I'm black, I'm female. And I had, I had been told, right, that my own success was because I had worked really hard. But really, and this was like a little bit of a blow to my ego, right? Like lots of people work hard. Mm-hmm. Um, and I now understand that I'm actually an exception. And I think we point to lots of exceptions. You know, I think we can point to Barack Obama or Oprah. We love like these stories of rags to riches or people who kind of overcame obstacles and made it, right? That's like so much part of our American dream narrative. But those people, myself included, are exceptions. And mostly we're exceptions because we're lucky. And that doesn't mean that I'm not amazing and wonderful, but it does mean that my success isn't solely because of my hard work. And I think part of how that narrative transforms to, you know, what your Republican friends think is that we think, well, the people who make it are the people who have worked hard. And if I, I made it because I worked hard, right? We don't see kind of some of the invisible supports and privileges that exist that actually allow us to be successful in a, in a context in which most people are not successful, honestly. So the, the underlying assumption there is that people who haven't made it, like, didn't work hard. So I really believe that, right? I mean, I wouldn't have said, like, poor people are lazy. Like, I grew up in a neighborhood where I saw people working really hard every day. But the idea of free money just, like, just went against this thing that I'd been, you know, socialized to believe. Then I changed my mind. (laughs) Changing your mind, of course, is something a lot of people never do. Tell us about how those changes happened. The place that I heard about guaranteed income was in a black studies class when I was in college, um, taught by this amazing professor, Adrian Lash Jones. This is at Oberlin. And it was my political education. It's where I began to understand that there really are these deeply entrenched, expansive systems of oppression that we're all living in and responding to and trying to navigate around. So I, I was like, oh, like, these, are, these are the things that are actually at play here. Like our economy is set up in a way, you know, and it, and it is coupled with um, patriarchy and white supremacy. Like it's set up in a way that makes it very difficult if you start, you know, if you don't already, if you're not already a like wealthy white man when you're born, like if you don't, if you start in a different place, like it's going to be very hard for you to get anywhere else. So once I recognized that, I realized that, what I'd, what I'd been taught growing up was not true. I definitely think policy is super important, but I also think there, for me, um, what I'm drawn to really is people's stories. Um, and I think our, the stories are the things that really bring, you know, our human experience to life. They're the things that outside of our actual relationships with people that we know are how we understand and kind of extend our sense of generosity and love, really, to other people. You talked about decoupling deservedness from work. How do we do that? So I don't know how we do that, but I'm going to tell you what it means. (laughs) Um, So, you know, as I was saying, like, we really have this idea about hard work um, equals success. And part of that is really this idea that doing that we, we believe that like paid labor is moral. 
the Insight Center, um, which is based in Oakland, did some really amazing research on how, how Americans think about the economy. And what they found is that like Americans, and this is across race and gender and class, Americans believe that paid work confers personhood, like that you're not really a whole person if you do not have a job. There's this way in which we've decided that like work is what makes you a whole person. But if we really believe that like human rights, like food, housing, access to education and healthcare are rights, then nobody has to do anything to prove they deserve them, right? Human rights are things that you don't have to earn and they're not things that you can unearn. So I think part of the message that I want people to understand is that like people who are poor work really hard, but that's not even the point. If you are 40 years old and you spend your days smoking like cannabis in your mother's basement, like you still deserve to have food and shelter and access to education and healthcare. Like all of the things, all the stereotypes we have about people who don't work hard, even if those things were true, those people still deserve basic human rights. Mia Birdsong, her new podcast, More Than Enough, is amazing and wonderful. And it's live now at thenation.com, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Mia, thanks for everything you do, and thanks for talking with us today. Thank you, John. Now it's time to talk about democratic socialism, American style. And for that, we turn to Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin. Kate's writing has appeared in The Guardian, The New York Times, Jacobin, and The Nation. Michael is professor of history at Georgetown University and a co-editor of Dissent Magazine, published widely, including The Nation. The two of them are co-editors, along with Peter Dreyer, of a new book. It's called We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin, welcome back. Great to be here. Yeah, likewise. Well, in Donald Trump's 2019 State of the Union address, he said, quote, America will never be a socialist country, close quote. I'm not sure any previous president delivering any previous State of the Union speech made a statement like that. What do you make of it? What's its significance? What what Donald Trump and a lot of the right wing more generally is responding to uh, is the fact that there are a growing number of young people, as we point out in the book, who uh, are not sort of souls. It's not just young people. Um, There's a lot of people who were disenfranchised by the financial crisis or who have just been living, you know, for years and years within a system um, that hasn't worked for them for any number of reasons. And so um, there's this growing sense sort of voiced by politicians like Bernie Sanders, like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, by a sort of growing movement of democratic socialists, um, that there is an alternative out there, that, you know, the system we live in now is not the only system, economic or otherwise, which can exist or which has ever existed or the only possible way that humans can organize themselves. And so this, you know, has a long, long history um, in the American right. Red baiting, of course, you know, was was pretty foundational to the 20th century. And so I think what we're seeing from politicians like Donald Trump uh, is this attempt to sort of revive these very old scripts about about the communist threat, about Soviet Russia, about, you know, now we get of lines about Venezuela and, 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 you know, these sort of uh, skeptors of, of socialism 
um, these ghosts really, uh, and they're not really sticking, right? We have, you know, Bernie Sanders, a Democratic Socialist, polling consistently um, in, in the top spot in uh, the presidential election. Uh, you have, you know, record numbers of support, very high levels of support for policies like Medicare for All, the Green New Deal, which, you know, we can argue about whether they're socialist programs, but certainly represent a big break uh, from, from where the status quo has been in terms of, you know, policy in either the Republican or Democratic Party. Uh, and so uh, I think, you know, that is scary to to the Donald Trumps of the world. So, Michael, Bernie Sanders, of course, gets the credit for putting Democratic Socialism on the agenda, which he is doing inside the Democratic Party. That's not always the place socialists focus their energies on. No, and uh, we have an article right in the front of the uh, of this volume of We Own the Future that Peter Dreyer and I wrote together, which details how, um, you know, socialism has a long history in this country, but uh, its history until fairly recently, uh, for recent decades, has really been as an independent party, there were different socialist parties from uh, from right after the Civil War uh, up really until the 1950s, 1960s. But as a third party, they never did very well. And one of the brilliant things that I think Sanders did and that uh, many people in Democratic Socialist America, the leading socialist organization in America, have signed on to as well, too, is if they feel that the Democratic Party is is open enough to uh, people on the left that they can be active in the party, they can put forth socialist ideas and programs and proposals in the party and win a lot of votes that way and also win some offices that way. So what what does socialism mean today in the United States? One way to answer that is to look at actually existing democratic socialist countries. I wonder what you see that is worth emulating in Sweden, Spain, Austria, I don't know, Finland, the happiest country on earth. Uh, What we lay out in the book is that there are a lot of lessons that we can look to um, from, you know, what we, what we think of as as a sort of actually existing social democracy. So Sweden, Finland, Denmark, uh, Norway, um, but they're, you know, real lessons. They have uh, societies in which um, upward mobility is actually possible in, in a certain way, uh, that there is a safety net such that, you know, people are not sort of fighting for survival in the same way that they do in the United States. They, of course, have universal health care, as do most industrialized countries. Um, things like child care uh, are much more generous than they are here. Um, levels of environmental protection, which are much more generous than they are here, even in places which have managed to carve out, um, you know, cities which are have been controlled by social democrats and democratic socialists for a long time, um, in particular Vienna, um, you have uh, only one third of, of the city's housing stock is uh, is privately owned. A third of it is cooperative. A third of it is publicly owned. And people love it, right? That's a system that's been around for a very long time. It's constantly improving. It's constantly expanding and looks a lot different. You know, there's a very different relationship to public goods than than we have here in the United States where, you know, I live in New York City. We have a a public housing system, which has been sort of systematically disinvested from, is, you know, really in disrepair. And that sort of feeds this narrative that public goods are the sort of last resort. Whereas in a city like Vienna, um, you have really beautiful public housing that people are excited to live in um, and that you can actually afford to live in. And it's not just in Europe. Bernie talks about fulfilling the rest of the New Deal agenda of FDR that was announced in the 30s and 40s. 
Michael, what do we find there that's relevant today? Well, see, one of his last big speeches, uh, he talked about an economic bill of rights, uh, building on the civil liberties in the, uh, the original bill of rights, uh, many of which had just been extended, actually, uh, to every state uh, by the Supreme Court at the time. And, you know, this is at the core, I think, of what socialism should mean. That is, uh, as, as Kate was saying, that there are certain things, housing, transportation, right to a job, right to a clean environment, uh, cheap and reliable, sustainable uh, transportation, uh, and an environment generally uh, that you know really are everyone should have a good birthright and and FGR was talking about that not about the environment because that was not yet a big big issue uh, in the country uh, but Michael Walzer longtime co-editor of of, of Dissent magazine as as many uh, people out there know and great public uh, uh, a great political theorist you know has talked about having a decent society you know a morally decent society and I think you know every 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 human being you know having the right to um, uh, these goods that everyone needs without having to, uh, including healthcare, of course, too, without having to uh, divest all their budget, without having to, uh, you know, borrow lots of money, uh, um, is something which which socialists have always stood for, and and something which, uh, as Kate was saying, has become more and more popular. I think uh, these ideas and. And of course, the reason why it's so important to have democratic socialism is because you know we have to, you know, be able to convince a majority of people uh, to support these ideas. And FDR was beginning uh, to make that argument, and unfortunately, he uh, he died before he really could uh, uh, do much about it. He didn't really uh, serve much at all of his of his fourth term in office. But really, that is still the vision I think of of people who call themselves socialists in this country. Of course, the most fundamental threat we all face now is the climate crisis. Is there a distinctly socialist approach to reducing the speed of climate change? Yeah, I mean, I would say that any viable socialism in the 21st century needs to be eco-socialism. And Naomi Klein has a great essay in the culture, which really lays this out, which is that the sort of logic of extraction of, you know, this idea that we can dominate the earth, that natural resources are just sort of there for the taking and the plunder, that has really transcended political systems uh, in in the last, you know, three, 300, 400 years. And there were socialist societies, I mean, most notably the Soviet Union, which were not, of course, environmentally friendly, in part because that wasn't sort of a frame that existed. But, you know, in part because that was a, a that was a different belief system. We do have examples of societies which have lived in, in better harmony with the earth, um, which have, you know, managed to sort of store resources in a way that's been more responsible. And so I think we, you know, have to look there too, to sort of the ways that, for instance, many indigenous communities have, have you know, looked toward the land to not, you know, pursue the same sort of, you know, path of development that, that Western, a lot of Western societies have. And so I think, you know, any, any socialism today really needs to reckon with that reality. So the goal cannot just be, for instance, expanding production, however, sort of democratically managed that production is, however much control sort of workers have over over those functions, that is is not going to work. Um, really sort of rethinking what it is that society values and what it is that we're chasing um, really, I think, puts us on a path that's not just more humane, that's better for, you know, the majority of people, but also is, is sort of more in line with, with the reality of the climate crisis that we're facing. The book is We Own the Future, Democratic Socialism, American Style. It includes chapters on sports, on banks, on work, healthcare, campaign finance, immigration, and families. We've been speaking with two of the editors, Kate Aronoff and Michael Kazin. Kate and Michael, thanks so much for talking with us today. 
Thank you, John. Thank you. Start Making Sense, a podcast from The Nation magazine, is co-produced by the L.A. Review of Books and recorded at the studios of Emerson College, Los Angeles, located in the heart of Hollywood, with technical assistance from Justin Allen. The theme music for our podcast is by Barcelona Afrobeat, licensed by Creative Commons. Our recording engineer is William Broughton. Alan Minsky is our senior producer. Frank Reynolds is our executive producer. Annie Shields is the nation's engagement editor. D.D. Guttenplan is editor of the nation. Katrina Vandenhuvel is publisher and editorial director of the nation. For more principled progressive journalism from the nation, you can subscribe to our print and digital magazine online at thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. With this special discount for Start Making Sense listeners, you can get digital access to all of our articles for less than $1.50 a month. You can have our print magazine delivered to you for just 60 cents an issue. Go to thenation.com slash podcast subscribe. You can find out more about the Start Making Sense podcast at thenation.com And you can subscribe to Start Making Sense wherever you get your podcasts at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or Pocket Casts. I'm John Wiener. Tune in to Start Making Sense next week for more political talk without the boring parts. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success.